This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Fall and Rise of China, part of the Great Courses series by Professor Richard Baum. I know I've said before that to really know Japanese history, you have to also look into Chinese history, and I really think in particular the period of the 19th and 20th centuries is so tightly wound with Japan's own history that it's well worth getting to know if you're at all interested in that period. So, go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 102, the episode formerly known as the 100th episode. So here we are, more than two years and slightly more than 100 episodes later, still going strong. I don't have much of an introduction prepared aside from to just say thank you to all of you for listening to the show and for spreading the word. I love working on the show and I love talking to you guys about the show though I know I've been worse than usual in responding to email. Hopefully when the quarter's over, that's going to change. Also, once again, an extra special thank you to everybody who has ever donated money to support the show. I cannot say enough how much I appreciate the support. So with all that out of the way, let's dive in. Our first question is on the origin of the name Land of the Rising Sun. Where does it come from? Well, the term's a literal translation of the kanji used in the Japanese name for their own country. Ni meaning sun, same one as the Nichi and Konnichiwa. Hon meaning base or root, same as Kihon meaning basic, for Nihon or Nippon. The question then arises, where does the name Nihon come from? Remember, this is not the original name for Japan. Originally, Chinese texts refer to it as the Kingdom of Wa with Wa being a Japanese reading for a Chinese word meaning something like dwarf, the going theories being that this was either an insulting nickname, or referred to the apparently ancient habit of Japanese people bowing all the time, thus making themselves shorter than everybody else. The name Nihon is also actually an invention of the East Asian mainland. Around the time of the late Kofun period, the late 500s or so, Chinese correspondents starts to refer to Japan as the Kingdom of the Rising Sun, or Nihonkoku in Japanese, Zhibengu in Chinese. The name caught on. We don't know why exactly, but likely it had to do with the cultural cachet of China, as well as a desire to drop the more insulting nickname. The Wa name does live on, though, using a homophonous kanji, not the one for dwarf, but the one for harmony, in some Japanese terms, washoku for traditional Japanese food, Wago for pre-Chinese-influenced Japanese words, that kind of thing. Our second question has to do with the Meiji Restoration. Specifically, was the emperor a god or a man in the eye of the ruling class? Did people feel reverence for him, or was it just pure cynicism? In addition, what's the role of the emperor today? Does he still play a relevant role? 
Now, the issue of the Emperor is a deeply complicated one. His role in Japanese history remains very contentious, particularly because, as we're going to see this summer when we talk about the atomic bombs, traditionally the role of the Emperor has been very badly defined. First of all, before we get to the ruling class, let's talk a bit about the regular old folks. Most people, for most of Japanese history, were only distantly aware of the Emperor. During the Edo period, they likely would be at least aware of his existence in general, but little beyond that. During the Meiji period, the government put a lot of effort into promoting a cult of emperor worship, making his birthday into a holiday, declaring several days of mourning after his death, and devoting a lot of educational time and energy to developing a sense of connection between the average people and the emperor. That connection was very hierarchical. The emperor acted as a sort of Confucian father figure for the entire nation, with patriotism being a sort of filial obedience and filial piety on a mass scale. For the elite in Japanese society, the role of the emperor in the Restoration remains deeply controversial. We're going to do a multi-part series down the line, probably sometime in the fall, on the Meiji Restoration, and I'm going to dive into this a bit more then, but... Broadly speaking, and this is just my interpretation, it's not common wisdom by any measure, the decision to restore power to the emperor was a consequence more than anything else of the political theory of the time. Political thinkers during the Edo period spent a lot of time asking the question, where does legitimate authority come from? Unlike the thinkers of the Western Enlightenment who relied on a purely rationalist philosophy to try and work out where authority should come from, Japanese philosophers were mostly historians. They looked to the Japanese past to ask where political authority had come from. The answer they came away with was always the emperor empowered people to act on his behalf. Thus, once the Tokugawa failed, the natural response of any educated person would be to return power to the emperor because any educated person would know that that's where power did come from, just like how American rebels in the 1770s established a republic based on popular sovereignty, because any educated person in the colonies knew that popular sovereignty was where power should come from. Did they actually believe the emperor was divine? Well, here's the thing. This is something I talk about with my students all the time when we're talking about the idea of divine right monarchy. Did Egyptians really believe the pharaoh was the son of Ra? Did Akkadians really believe that Sargon was part god? To our modern mind, imbued with cynicism, this idea just seems ridiculous. But keep in mind that today we also have a lot of assumptions that we don't really interrogate that closely, even though we have no good reason necessarily to believe them strongly. The one I use in class all the time is, democracy is the best form of government. How do you prove that? How do you know that? A lot of people likely assumed the emperor had some kind of special authority, and in the absence of any other way to label it, would call it divine. It wouldn't necessarily be fervent belief in the way you'd expect, say, a born-again Christian to fervently believe in the Bible, more of a generally unquestioning acceptance of the idea that of course the emperor is important, he's always been important. As for today, well, it depends a lot on your political views. Socialists and communists generally don't want the institution around anymore. Ultra-rightists want to go back to what was, in their mind, the good old days of pre-1945 Japan. And most other people don't really care one way or the other. Akihito, the sitting emperor, is respected and liked, but not really politically relevant. 
Basically, he's the nation's dignified, respected, and most importantly unoffensive grandfather figure. This image is managed to a large part by the Kunaicho, or Imperial Household Agency, a bureaucratic office responsible for managing the Imperial family. This agency carefully manages the Imperial family's public appearances. Even their hobbies are carefully vetted to ensure that they give the right impression. Tennis is good, but something like Kendo comes off as too aggressive. The agency also controls all the family's properties. The imperial family has even less fiscal freedom than the British royal family. All of this extends even to the emperor's private life, all of this image management. The imperial household agency is careful to note, for example, that even when Akihito drives in the grounds of the imperial palace, and naturally he drives a 15-year-old Honda, he follows all of the traffic laws despite being the only person on the road. Another question from a listener, what would be the number one thing you recommend people see if they visit Japan? So I agonized for around 20 minutes about how to even start answering this question, and in the end I think I'm just going to cheat and give you four different answers in four different regions, depending on where you go. In Tokyo, my first love, and I go to see it every time I'm there, is Sensoji in Asakusa. This is for a few traditionally very touristy reasons. The temple is ancient, it was originally founded in 628, and the current set of tori, or shrine gates, is from 1727. It's also absolutely gorgeous, the grounds are beautiful, and they're surrounded by a sort of street market, called the Nakamise Dori, where you can buy some gloriously kishi tourist crap. However, the place has a lot of nostalgic value for me personally, because the very first night I ever spent in Japan was in Asakusa trying desperately to find my youth hostel, with two of my fellow travelers. We got lost on the grounds of Sensoji, and I still remember wandering the area and feeling utterly overwhelmed at how different this place was from what I'd been used to, and how damn cool it was. Also, we were rescued by two super cute Japanese girls in kimono, which for 18-year-old me was pretty much the best thing in the universe. Other places worth your time in Tokyo if you're there are Ueno Park, check out the Saigo statue, Meiji Shrine, Zojoji, the burial grounds of the old Tokugawa shoguns, and Hiei Shrine, which among other things has a really cool old weapons collection. Also, I guess, if you want to see some stuff built after 1912, you could do that too if you're into that sort of thing. In central Honshu, I honestly just recommend going to Kyoto and wandering around. Personally, I have a deep-seated love of Fushimi Inari Shrine, which is incredibly beautiful and a wonderful place to get lost in. It's the one with the paths covered in red tori gates, and it's even more striking in real life. Other places to visit in Kyoto are Nijo Castle, the old outpost of the Tokugawa in Kyoto, Ginkakuji and Kinkakuji, which respectively represent the slightly more restrained and totally unrestrained ends of the architectural spectrum in medieval Japan, and pretty much everything in the Gion district. Hiroshima is also well worth your time for all the reasons you'd expect, and it's very close to the gloriously beautiful island of Itsukushima, a great place to visit while you recover your faith in humanity. On Shikoku, any of the 88 pilgrimage temples are worth visiting if you have the time, and the whirlpools in Naruto Bay are also well worth a visit. They're a gorgeous view, especially in the spring when the tides are the strongest. Finally, Hokkaido. I lived there for a few months in 2009, and I still remember the place with tremendous fondness. Pretty much the entire city of Hakodate is worth a trip. 
Hakodate was one of the first treaty ports, and has some spectacular mixed Japanese foreign architecture, in addition to a really good view of the city from Mount Hakodate. Also, the seafood is really good, and they actually make spicy food that's really spicy. Sorry, people of Okinawa and Kyushu, I've never been that far south, so I can't really say what's cool down there. I'd love to go sometime, though, and I promise to report back when I do. Another listener asked about the different styles of Japanese romanization. For this to make any sense, we have to first talk about how sounds are structured in Japanese. Japanese has only five vowels. A as in car, E as in B, U as in zoo, E as in left, and O as in go. Each vowel can stand free or be bound to a consonant that comes in front of it. Ka, ki, ku, ke, ko, nani, nu, ne, no, that sort of thing. Every syllable has to have a vowel in it. The only exception is a freestanding sound halfway between an M and an N. So, for example, there are four syllables in the word for your superior at school or at work. Se, n, pi, Most words are the same in all three systems of romanization. For example, the word for you, anata, would be the same in all of them. A-N-A-T-A. Where things get a little weird is with variant sounds. Chi, chi, tsu, and so on. So, three systems of romanization. The first is called Hepburn Romanization, named after James Curtis Hepburn, an American missionary who developed this system in order to transcribe Japanese words in a Japanese-English dictionary he published in 1887. Hepburn is far and away the most popular form of romanization, mostly because for anyone who speaks a language that uses the Latin alphabet, any European language, English, anything like that, it's the easiest one to pick up. So, in Hepburn, the word for sushi is written like it's said in Japanese, S-U-S-H-I. The second system of romanization is called Nihonshiki romanization, or Japanese-style romanization, designed by the Japanese physicist Tanakadate Aikitsu, roughly at the same time as Hepburn. Tanakadate actually wanted to get rid of kanji altogether and just use Latin characters to write Japanese. He thought it would make it easier for Japan to compete with the West without the baggage of having to learn hundreds of characters just to be basically literate. Since he was working primarily for a Japanese audience, Tanakadate did not have to worry about trying to match sounds in English with ones in Japanese. He went with something more abstract, more regular, with fewer exceptions. So, for example, sushi in Nihonshiki would be written S-U-S-I, dropping the H because it's something that native Japanese speakers would know to just put in. The sound for chi, meanwhile, would be written T-I, with a native speaker knowing to adjust their pronunciation. In the 1930s, Nihonshiki went the way of the dinosaur in favor of a government-mandated form of romanization called kunreishiki, literally, cabinet-mandated style. It's more or less the same thing as Nihonshiki with some minor differences to how voiced consonants, like the zu and kudzu, are written. During the occupation, kunreishiki was actually suppressed by the Americans on the theory that it was identified with the pre-war government. You could actually get denounced for using it in official documents. But after the war, the ban was lifted, and kunreishiki is still taught in Japanese schools as the default method for romanizing Japanese. Japanese government documents use kunreishiki unless there's something foreigners are likely to see a lot of, 
passports, street signs, that kind of thing, because Hepburn remains the easiest one for non-native Japanese speakers to pronounce correctly. Hepburn is almost certainly the only one you'll learn as a non-native student of Japanese. I've never heard of a program using Kunrei or Nihonshiki for students, for the simple reason, and I don't want to sound biased here, that the other systems are stupid and useless. So basically, go Hepburn or go home. Another listener asked, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about Japan? I think there are three big ones. The idea of group orientation, the idea that there's some kind of consensus on historical revisionism in modern Japan, and the idea that Japan is some kind of high-tech paradise. To take the last first, it's true that Tokyo is basically the cyberpunk future. I think it was William Gibson, one of the most famous science fiction authors ever, who said that if you wanted to see the future, he would just go to Tokyo. Now, Tokyo is a lot of Japan. The greater metropolitan area has 37 million inhabitants, according to a 2014 survey by the UN, out of a total national population of 128 million, meaning that just short of 30% of the country lives in Tokyo and the surrounding metropolitan area. That being said, Tokyo is not all of Japan. In the rest of Japan, the infrastructure tends to be a bit older, a lot of it dates from the 90s. So only recently have you been able to pay with credit cards, and in places off the beaten path you have antiquated train lines instead of brand new ones. When I was living in Hokkaido in 2009, I had no internet access at home and only limited access at school, which is how I racked up a $200 phone bill in two months talking to my parents and my girlfriend. The disparity isn't as bad as China, where you can go from the cutting edge of modern to something that looks like the 1940s in only a few miles, but it does exist. Second, we have the issue of historical revisionism. Japan's fearless leader, Abe Shinzo, has been making waves lately with his, and I don't want to sound judgy here, really stupid attempts to bully people into ignoring the more sordid aspects of Japan's past, or to whitewash Japanese history. Undoubtedly, there are a crazy core of right-wing people who really do believe him and back him in all of this, but most Japanese people either don't care that much or reject it altogether. Like we talked about in the Comfort Woman episode, it's really a matter of issue-based voting. Most people are going to vote for the person who they think is going to do right by them, and the public perception of their nation in other countries is going to factor in last, if at all, in most cases. Abe's party, the LDP, has an economic plan that at least sounds like it can work, though lately it seems to be faltering, and by comparison the opposition Democratic Party of Japan is, to put it charitably, a hot mess. In addition, the Prime Minister is not elected in Japan. If you want to give him the boot, you have to take away his parliamentary majority, which means voting against your local LDP representative, who may not have done anything wrong. So basically, I don't think Japan is more revisionist than most countries, I just think the way the system is structured, as well as the general nature of democracy, disincentivizes punishing Abe for his stupid behavior. Finally, we have the idea that Japanese people are group-oriented. There are all kinds of anecdotal observations that get tossed out to prove this. From some quick googling, I found everything from a tendency to dress in the similar way, to a tendency to buy group tour packages rather than traveling by yourself, as proof of Japanese group orientation. These are all great examples of why anecdotes are not data. Each of these conclusions says more about the assumption of the person stating them than Japanese people themselves. 
All of my students dress very similarly. They dress fashionably. My aunt is a tour guide for package tours, and most, though not all, of her customers are Americans. And, of course, there's the fact that one of the premier examples of groupthink in history is the consensus among Americans in December 1941 that Japan would never dare attack them. Aspects of group orientation exist in American culture and Japanese culture. Aspects of individualism also exist in both American culture and Japanese culture. We tend to magnify examples of groupthink in Japan and look at examples of groupthink in the U.S. as aberrant or unusual, but the truth is we have far more in common than not. Another listener asked, Have you been to Meiji Mura near Nagoya? I wish I'd listened to your podcasts before I went. Tragically, I've only ever been to ten cities in Japan. Tokyo, Yokohama, Kamakura, Kyoto, Osaka, Tokushima, Hiroshima, Hakodate, and Sapporo. I've never been to Nagoya because most of the time when I'm in Japan, I'm either in Tokyo doing research, locked up in a boring archive somewhere, or visiting friends who live in those other cities. I've heard of Mijimura, I really want to go myself, and I encourage any of you who are in Japan to go. I just need to save up some money so I can go on my own dime, rather than getting a research grant that traps me in a library all day. Another listener asked about how to learn Japanese outside of the classroom. Any recommendations I have about that? This is what I'm going to throw open to you guys. I'd actually love to hear anything you've got about how to learn Japanese outside of a classroom setting. The best recommendation I can give is to find the local Japanese community in your city and find a way to connect with it. This is obviously easier in some places, like Seattle, LA, or New York, than it is in others. If you can do it, find a cultural club or a society to join. I learned a lot of Japanese from doing kendo at a primarily Japanese club. The instructors, even the white ones, all spoke to each other and to me primarily in Japanese, which was great for my conversational skills, less great for my kendo. So if there's a Japanese cultural society anywhere near you, take advantage. You'll learn so much and get a lot of confidence just from talking to native speakers. Media is another great way to learn the language. Find something you're interested in. If you're starting off, a manga for younger kids is good. Or some basic anime, for example, Crayon Shinchan was a fixture of my second year Japanese class. From there, you can graduate up to newspaper articles or TV shows. Just try not to rely on a dictionary too much, and as much as possible, use context to figure out meaning instead. I try to keep my ability to read Japanese, if not speak it, from rusting over too much by reading a short article from a Japanese newspaper once a day. The best way to learn, though, is the same it's always been. Go to the country and live there. The sink-or-swim approach can be scary, but you will get by, and you will be amazed how much your confidence increases. Another listener asked why I don't talk more about the historiography of Japanese figures, like Minamoto no Yoshitsune or Taira no Kiyomori. Why don't I talk about how they were depicted in later Japanese history? Mostly this is a result of the fact that to speak to these kind of depictions, you have to be much more familiar with the historical literature on a topic. To make intelligent points about how the story of the Genpei War has been written over the course of Japanese history, I would need to do a lot more reading than what's required to just write an episode on the Genpei War. I can speak intelligently to the historiography of Meiji Japan because I know it well from my own coursework, but for other periods I just don't have the background and school does not leave me the time to get it. I try to cover it when I think it's particularly relevant, so the consistent demonization of Ashikaga Takauji 
or the tendency to link Oda Nobunaga and Taira no Kiyomori for their sacrilegious actions in burning temples, that kind of thing. But I can't always do it, which is unfortunate. Historiography really is absolutely fascinating, the study of learning about how people write history. It's not great for learning the subject that's being talked about, but it's very interesting for teasing apart the assumptions of historians as they write history. That said, you're going to get a lot of historiography when we get to the atomic bombs. It's going to be at least three episodes out of a total of probably five or six. So maybe you'll get tired of it when we get to that. Our next question, what do you think is the most interesting parallel between Western and Japanese history? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. I'm not really looking into research academia as a career for reasons that I don't want to bore you with, but which I'm happy to lay out for anyone who's curious, but I still do want to write books someday. The first one I'd like to write is going to be a side-by-side -side comparison of the French Revolution and the Meiji Restoration. When you think about it, there's a lot of contextual similarity. Both crises involve long-term rot in an aristocratic system that was pressured from below by groups wanting an increased share of power for themselves, which then boiled over as the result of foreign conflicts and short-term crises. As a result, things got much worse, extremists were able to use violence to seize control of the process of political change, and the political system shifted very rapidly. To borrow the phrasing of the brilliant Mike Duncan, a man could go from a bomb-throwing revolutionary to a moderate to a weak-kneed reactionary in a few years without changing his views at all. To my mind, the difference in outcome comes from a sort of intellectual path determinants. The ideas floating around in political discourse in both countries informed the outcome to a large degree because those ideas determined what people looking at the problems of the day would think to be the source of their issues. In other words, the assumptions you had going into trying to fix the problem determined what your solution was coming out. It's not really fleshed out very well, but one day I do plan to clean the idea up a bit and pitch it around to see what kind of response I get. Our next listener question involves the paradoxes of Japanese behavior at home and abroad. How could a society so ordered at home be capable of producing the kind of people who could do something like the Nanjing Massacre? We're going to get into this in more depth when we get to December. Like I said, I'll be doing an episode timed specifically for the anniversary of the start of the Nanjing Massacre. Simply put, though, I think that specifically Japanese atrocities can be attributed to two things. First, the 19th and 20th century culture of militaries generally, and second, the structure of the Japanese military specifically. Now, to take the first on, it's only recently we've started training soldiers for things like occupation duties, which are very different from what they're traditionally asked to do. All the practice at shooting targets and field maneuvers won't help you figure out if that woman coming up to you to ask directions is actually lost or about to pull out a knife and stab you. Especially in the 19th century, military officers were taught a pretty straightforward train of reasoning. Locate the enemy, bring overwhelming force to bear on the enemy, scatter the enemy. Do this enough times and you'll gain control of strategic points that will bring the other side to the negotiating table. Basically, all officers were trained with only one tool, force, in their proverbial toolkit, and, as the old saying goes, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is true of most 19th century militaries. The first person to advance this military culture hypothesis was actually a historian of Germany named Isabel Hull, 
who was trying to explain German practices in their African colonies as well as occupied Belgium during the First World War. Her book is called Absolute Destruction, Military Culture, and the Practices of War in Imperial Germany, and it's well worth a read if you're at all interested in the topic. While the book's about Germany, it's definitely applicable to Japan, too. When trying to pacify the Chinese, Japanese commanders had been trained to think that the only way to get what they wanted was to apply force. Not working? Apply more force. Eventually the enemy will give in. Second, we have the peculiar characteristics of the Japanese army. For the time they were drafted, Japanese recruits were put under a tremendous amount of psychological abuse, and physical abuse too. The treatment was absolutely brutal, beatings for even the slightest infractions, constant dehumanization, and generally just trying to grind down the recruits. The goal of this system was, theoretically, to make recruits psychologically and spiritually tough enough to stand up to the rigors of modern warfare. All this strain required some kind of outlet, and usually that outlet would be the person beneath you. Officers would abuse NCOs, so NCOs would abuse enlistees, and so on. But what do you do to the people on the bottom? Well, there is somebody under you. Civilians in the occupied territories. So in this line of thinking, what happened in Nanjing was basically one big psychological snap. Given permission to cut loose, soldiers unleashed an orgy of destruction to release the tension they were under. This is just my take on it, but like I said, we're going to expand it out in a few months. A listener also wrote in asking for my thoughts on the Japanese education system. Substantial reform really is necessary. At the UW, we get Japanese students fairly regularly, and while they're all bright and hardworking, they're just not really prepared for analytical work. Debate, essay writing, public speaking, that kind of thing. Arguably, that's true of American students, too, but the issues of our public system are a question well beyond the scope of this one. Simply put, the testing system in Japan, as it exists, incentivizes study exclusively for purposes of passing exams, that's what determines what college you go to, which in turn determines a lot of future prospects. If you're a student, it's in your best interest to concentrate on learning how to take that kind of test, and if you're a teacher, it's in your interest to ignore everything in favor of trying to get your students to do as well on the test as possible. Except, of course, that standardized testing does not really reflect the realities of the skills you'll need in life, which is where we get students who can't speak publicly or have a hard time giving their opinions on a paper. In many respects, this problem would actually be easier to fix in Japan than the U.S., at least to my thinking, because the elite institutions of higher education in Japan, with the exception of Waseda and Keio universities, are public and thus more easily brought around to reform initiatives. So what's needed, more than anything to my mind, is a reevaluation of the priorities of education, a conscious decision to shift the goal from being able to reproduce information for a test to being able to synthesize it intellectually. That means radically restructuring both the educational curriculum and the college admission system in favor of something closer, though not necessarily identical to, the American system. That's going to take wide-ranging agreement between Japan's ministries of education, politicians, and the teachers' union, and especially with the historic antagonism between right-wing politicians and the left-leaning teachers' union, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Last, one of you asked about the possibility of a History of Japan podcast tour. 
I would absolutely love to do a tour along the lines of the ones that Mike Duncan did for the history of Rome and is doing for Revolutions, his new podcast. I even do have ideas about where I'd take you all. However, I have literally no idea how I'd go about setting up something like that, nor, tragically, do I have the disposable income to go on one right now, thanks a bunch, grad school. Once I have a more stable income, though, which will hopefully be in only a few short years, I'd definitely be in. And in the meantime, if any of you know how to organize that kind of thing, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, while I'm not making any promises about whether or not it will happen, I will promise you that if it does, I'll put something on the itinerary other than temples, museums, and shrines. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Ron Hyatt and Gary Foran for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the life and times of Mishima Yukio.